turning on my mic? Okay. What a privilege it is to be here in my last Sunday looking out, uh, not only on so many friends, but uh, on a body of Christ that has been uh, the life uh, that is supposed to be in my life as my brothers and sisters in Christ. Please join me in tuning in to our text this morning in Bibles, whether paper or online. Our passage is Hebrews 12, verses 4 to 13. It is Hebrews 12, verses 4 through 13. Starting in verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. And your hardship as discipline, God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits and live? They disciplined us for a while, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Please bow your heads in prayer with me. God, it is a privilege to cry out to you as our Father. Thank you for all of those in the congregation today that have had the privilege of both being fathered and being fathers. Thank you especially for my father who's been so formative uh, and has pointed me back to you for all the years of my life. Thank you for returning the power to us that we might have a more normal service today. I pray for those who for whom this holiday is bittersweet, who've had fathers who have not fulfilled their God-given role, or who have recently lost a father. I pray that today uh, might be a day of comfort for them as we point them back to our true, to you, our true Heavenly Father. All this I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is fitting, as John said in introducing this morning, that our study of Hebrews on Father's Day comes to the biblical truth that God relates to his people in a way that's analogous to the way a good human father relates to his children. The Bible teaches us that God's fatherly care for his people includes training and discipline using difficult circumstances, even suffering to refine us so that we increasingly reflect the righteousness of Jesus. It's hard for me to put into words how special it is this morning to be able to speak to you on this text, both as a son 
and as a father. First, as a son, I'm blessed to have my dad here with us at Millington this morning. I'm grateful for his loving discipline. I remember a time when I was either in the second or third grade that I had done something so bad that it warranted the ultimate discipline my mother would dispense, which was just wait until your father gets home. Um, and of course, that wait is the most painful, painful part of it. But this particular day, I had a plan, and that was to strategically position myself on one side of the dining room table so that when my dad came home, I could um, elude him by simply running laps around the table. I had this all worked out. It was not the best conceived plan. I think it even involved taunting on my part about being uncatchable. Now, I have no recollection of what I had done that day that was bad, and I don't have any memory of the discipline ensued, but I do remember the realization that my plan was crumbling to pieces as my father simply pushed the dining room table against me to pin me gently against the wall. So there were no laps run around the table that day. I, uh, I'm glad that I was not allowed to sin with impunity, that I was lovingly set on a better path. Second, as a, a father entrusted with parenting five children, it's an amazing privilege to be able to co-preach this morning with my eldest son as we prepare to send him off to college, graduated on Friday, preaching together on Sunday Tuesday. Um, he drives up north into the Adirondacks to be a counselor to younger boys at Deerfoot Lodge, a Christian camp. And then we get him back for 24 hours on August 6th. Those may be some of the sweetest 24 hours of my life. We get him for 24 hours before we put him on a plane and send him off to Chicagoland for school at Wheaton. The son of my youth has become a young man. Uh, a man committed to following Jesus in heart, mind, soul, and strength, and I cannot but feel incredibly blessed to have watched his story unfold. But it was a story that involved fatherly discipline. If you're ever in doubt of the doctrine of original sin, you only need to spend a few days with a toddler. You don't have to teach a toddler to be self-centered. Tiny humans, however adorable they may be, are born with a sinful nature. It comes naturally. We don't have to teach our kids to lie and steal and cheat. They're born sons and daughters of Adam. It's in their nature. Have you ever seen a, a toddler throwing a temper tantrum on the floor, kicking and screaming, just furious at whatever they're not being allowed to have? My, uh, my old friend missionary Paul Washer once remarked that if you gave that toddler in the temper tantrum moment the strength of an NFL linebacker, they would not hesitate for a moment to tear you limb from limb to get whatever it is that they want in that moment. We're not born innocent. We like to tease Zach that when he was two and three years old, he went through this terrible phase of biting just anything and everything. We clamped his teeth on our calves. You know, there was one time that I had a birthday party for a, a friend. They had a one-year-old son who was holding, he dared to hold a balloon that Zach coveted, and Zach went over, and we saw it happening in slow motion. No! And Zach bit his cheek. There was another time when uh, when Zach just became enraged, and he went over to a wooden windowsill that was about eye level for him, and he just bit into the windowsill and ripped out a chunk of wood. I've never seen anything like it in my life. But by God's grace and through consistent parental discipline over time, I can assure you today that there's no risk, almost no risk, of Zach biting you today. Loving discipline often produces good outcomes, even though they may take years for the results to be seen. 
Our text today from Hebrews 12 teaches us three important truths about God's discipline in our lives. First, Christian suffering is God's discipline. Christian suffering is God's discipline. Second, God's children should embrace his discipline. God's children should embrace his discipline. Third, God's discipline produces righteousness and peace. It produces righteousness and peace. Since we're tag-teaming this morning for the sermon, I'll speak to points one and three, and Zach will come up and speak to the second point. Um, our first point, that Christian suffering is God's discipline, will be our longest. So if you're thinking about length, here we go. The author of Hebrews wants Christians to think rightly about their trials. In verse 4, he says, in your struggle, he's talked about persecution, he's talked about Jesus' experience, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Last week, Pastor Bob explored verses 1 through 3 of this chapter, how Christians are called to persevere in the race that God in his providence has set out for them to run. You might remember he set out some different kinds of shoes and said you need running shoes for the race if you're to run. It's a difficult race, but it's one that's been run before. There's a great cloud of witnesses to the faithfulness of God, and included in that number are the heroes of the faith that we thought about in chapter 11. It's a race that's been ultimately run by Jesus himself, who endured the cross and all of its shame, who endured opposition from sinful men, Look at those examples, the author of the Hebrews wrote. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Consider him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So there's this expectation that every believer is going to experience struggles in this earthly life. It's going to be a battle. The Greek word for struggle here is antagonizo, as in don't antagonize your brother. Right? This is about conflict, and the conflict here is against sin. Now sin here doesn't merely mean internal sins like lust and pride and greed. It's perhaps better thought as the personification of all of the dark forces of this world that are arrayed against God's people. Might think of it as the so-called three enemies of the human soul, the flesh, the world, and the devil. The Christian life, for any of us who have been believers for some time, we know that it isn't a cakewalk. We're saved from the penalty of sin the moment we put our trust in Jesus, but we continue to do battle with the reality of sin, both in ourselves, in other people, all of our lives. We must learn to resist the power of sin. We continue to live in a fallen world even after we're released from bondage to sin through the power of the blood of Jesus. And we know from the passages we've said earlier in this study of Hebrews, that the recipients of this letter have experienced severe persecution. They've suffered a great deal. But lest they start wallowing in self-pity, they're reminded that their suffering is actually lesser in degree to that of Jesus and the martyrs. He writes, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. We talked about that race analogy last week, and some people think that the writer here has in mind not a marathon, but the pentathlon which after its running and jumping events, ended with a kind of wrestling boxing match, kind of that day's mixed martial arts, right? And the competitors would bloody each other up. They'd end up with bloody hands. They say, you have not resisted to the point where you've bloodied your hands in your battle against sin. And perhaps these believers are wondering to themselves, well, why do God's people suffer insults and rejection and suffering at all. 
If God loves us and is all-powerful, why is this happening to us? And those negative experiences of suffering may be causing them to doubt God's love and his goodness for them, and maybe they're becoming discouraged. Perhaps that's you this morning. Maybe things aren't working out as you'd hoped. Perhaps you're uncertain about what it is that God's doing in your life, and that's causing you to doubt his goodness. Perhaps even to the point where you're entertaining suicidal thoughts. All believers at some point in their Christian journey will go through a dark night of the soul where God feels very absent. Hebrews 12 wants us to be reminded of what God's love actually looks like. And he says in verses 5 and 6, And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Have you completely forgotten? This is a reset moment. It's a call for minds to be renewed by going back to Old Testament truths about how God relates to his people. Here, quoting from Proverbs 3, if you followed the news this week, you saw the story of a, a mid-Atlantic lobsterman who was actually swallowed for a moment in the mouth of a humpback whale. Sometimes God sends a whale to redirect his people on the course he wants them to be on. Divine discipline and sonship go hand in hand. They go together. And did you notice that the author has changed the metaphor? We've been talking about a race, but now things have become relational. In hard times, we need more than a coach. We need a father. It's about trusting in God's fatherly care, even in the midst of suffering. As a Christian, you'll be ill-equipped to deal with the brutal realities of life and death if you expect being God's child means a life of ease. That's nowhere promised to us, and that's why the prosperity gospel is straight from the pit of hell. It's not that it makes the false claim, not only that it makes the false claim that being a faithful Christian will make you healthy, wealthy, and wise, faithfulness often being defined by giving to the prosperity gospel's ministry. Instead, it lies about what God's salvation is all about. It says to people, God's salvation is about comfort. The Bible says God's salvation is about our transformation. God is changing enemies into beloved sons and daughters. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, writes, in this world, royal children have to undergo extra training and discipline, which other children escape in order to fit them for their high destiny. It's the same with the children of the king of kings. The clue to understanding all of his dealings with them is to remember that throughout their lives, he's training them for what awaits them and chiseling them into the image of Christ. That chiseling is painful, it's unpleasant as it's happening, but it's purposeful. God disciplines the one he loves. But there can be misconceptions about what divine discipline is. Is God some sadistic torture that delights in our uncomfort and pain? We have to be careful here. We must always affirm that God is not the author of evil. God is good, he's morally perfect all of the time. Yet he does use evil for his purposes. Remember the story of Joseph, where Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. He would later say to those same brothers, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. And we see that the Bible everywhere assumes that both 
God's goodness and the existence of evil can coexist. And we see that most clearly in the cross of Jesus. The Bible sees the death of Jesus simultaneously and without conflict or contradiction, both as the eternal will of God the Father, the supreme vindication of his righteousness, and as the murderous act of sinful people, Pilate and the Jewish leaders conspiring to take the life of the Messiah. We can and we should call out evil where it exists in our suffering and pain, but that doesn't mean that God isn't using those circumstances for his ultimate purposes. One of my favorite pieces of art is a series of paintings by early 19th century Hudson River School painter Thomas Cole uh, called The Voyage of Life. These are four massive paintings in a series. They're huge. They hang in their own special room in the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. And the first of these paintings is called Childhood. It shows a newborn baby emerging from the darkness of a cavern, a metaphorical womb, starting its journey down a river that is kind of surrounded by flowers. It's all hope and promise. The waters are still. An angel kind of guides the way. In the second painting, Youth, the, um, the situation has changed. The, the, the baby has grown up a little bit. It's now a young man, and he is in control of the boat as it goes down the river. He has his hand on the till. He has ambitions. He has, sees kind of a... Can we advance to the next slide? There we go. He sees a celestial city in the distance, right? His gaze is upward. He's full of ambition for life. Little does he realize that the river will not lead him to that ultimate destination, because it actually, in the deep background of the painting, the river turns and it goes behind a group of trees. On the far side of those trees, if you saw the detail of the painting, you'd see kind of craggy rocks foreshadowing what is to come. The third painting, Manhood, now the angel is behind the man. He doesn't see the angel at all. The tiller is broken. He's down on his knee. All pride is gone. He's crying out for deliverance as the course of the river only is going to become more dangerous to him. His very life is at stake. The verdant banks are gone. Now it's just kind of dead limbs on the side of the banks. The fourth painting is called Old Age. And our journeyer has survived and has now emerged onto the stiller waters of eternity. Now the angels guiding him home as other angels descend from the light to welcome him to his heavenly reward. He has survived the journey. I want to go back for a moment to manhood, zooming in on the man in the boat. I think if we're honest with ourselves, this is what life feels like most of the time. Uh, it certainly does for me. It, it can feel chaotic, that we're, we're barely hanging on, white-knuckled, right? just trying to survive another day through the meetings and the demands, dealing with kids, dealing with all the things, and just collapsing, exhausted, maybe watching you know, one last Netflix show. That's what life feels like, that we, we're not in control anymore, right? We, the choices are set, and we are kind of full speed ahead down through the rapids. And maybe you even feel like being in the boat's a little ge too generous of coal. Maybe you feel like you're just being swept along by the current, smacking into the rocks again and again and again. Or perhaps what stands out to you most is the fact that the man is alone in the boat. You feel an acute loneliness. Maybe you've lost a spouse or a child or a friendship that meant so much to you has dissolved for reasons that you don't fully understand. The brokenness of, of loneliness is, is what you feel. 
Well, the good news this morning is that as well as Cole has captured what we experience and feel, this is actually a false description of the Christian's reality. Yes, Christian suffering is God's discipline, but we're never alone in it. And the notion that it's chaos or without purpose is untrue. The God who disciplines us is the very God who promises us that he will never leave us or forsaken us. The boat's not empty. He is with us in the boat. He is always the one who is in control of the tiller. We're never in control of it. He is always in control of it, guiding our destinies in a way that will ultimately glorify him, working all things out for our good. That's why we can sing as we did this morning, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Jesus assures us that not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father's will and that we are worth more than many sparrows. The great Puritan preacher Richard Sibbs in a book called The Bruised Reed, very fashionably colored here, I might add. He, he writes, if God brings us into the trial, he will be with us in the trial and at length bring us out more refined. We shall lose nothing but dross. From our own strength, we cannot bear the least trouble, but by the Spirit's assistance, we can bear the greatest. I mean, repeat that last line, it's so good, isn't it? From our own strength, we cannot bear the least trouble, but by the Spirit's assistance, we can bear the greatest. God is a purifying fire, but we, his children, are not consumed. Rather, the dross, the impurities are burned away. Until the refiner can see his own face in the metal, he heats it again and again, causing the impurities to rise so that he can scrape them away so that the metal becomes increasingly refined. Changing metaphors, the gardener is never closer to the plant that he's cultivating than when the pruning shears are in his hand. God treats us as his children, and children, if they are to mature well, require discipline. And T. Wright notes that it's precisely because he's treating us as sons and daughters that God will refuse to spoil us or ignore us, refuse to let us get away forever with rebellion or folly, with sin or stupidity. He has his ways of alerting his children to the fact that they should either pause and think again, or turn around and go in the opposite direction, or get down on their knees and repent. Christian suffering is God's loving, fatherly, discipline. Rightly understood, that's an encouraging word for all of us who have been adopted into the family of God through faith in Jesus. So listen now as Zach helps us think through our response. Point two, God's children should embrace his discipline. Verse seven tells us that we are to endure hardship as discipline. Now, I've never been a fan of math. In fact, by the latter half of seventh grade, I stopped doing my Algebra I homework altogether. My teacher was well-intentioned yet fairly disorganized and had not returned our homework to us all year. Thinking he did not grade the homework, I avoided what then felt like extra math. Unfortunately, he did grade the homework and my grade was in trouble. I also remember clearly how my lack of preparation in the class was displayed first in my test scores and ultimately in my seventh grade report card. 
To put it lightly, my parents were not pleased. After several long conversations, some electronic privileges were revoked, and I was required to take the Algebra 1 course online on Khan Academy over the summer. I was told, if this ever happens again, there will be huge consequences. God's children should embrace his discipline in three ways. First, as a mark of his love. Second, with willingness to learn. And third, by submitting to him and living. First, we should embrace God's discipline as a mark of his love. When my parents learned of my academic laziness, I was afraid of the consequence to be handed out. Why was I afraid? My mom and dad are good parents. I knew they would care enough about my academic well-being to, to make the punishment unpleasant enough that would motivate me not to repeat my mistakes in the future. Every good parent disciplines their children because they care too much for that child to allow them to continue in harmful rebellion. Discipline is a mode of protection. Looking back on our text, we see this is exactly what the author of Hebrews was saying. Verse 8, if you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Discipline, then, is evidence that we are God's sons and daughters, and because of that relational status, God is actively, intimately involved in our lives as the ultimate father who acts for our good. One man who understood this well was pastor and theologian Andrew Murray, who wrote, In every trial, small or great, first of all and at once, recognize God's hand in it. Say at once, my father has allowed this to come. I welcome it from him. My first care is to glorify him in it. He will make it a blessing. We may be sure of this. Let us by faith rejoice in it. While Andrew Murray did not endure the highlight real stories of martyrdom often associated with spiritual suffering, Murray had an exceptionally bad back that caused him great physical pain day in and day out. While a bad back may not be our idea of spiritual discipline, what a beautiful curse it was for Murray. I cannot imagine the patience and endurance that it taught him as he dealt with near debilitating pain. We, as sons and daughters of God, may rest in assurance of our identity in him as his children, evidenced through his loving discipline, whether in physical pain, a guilty conscience, or difficult situations. We should embrace God's discipline as a mark of his love. His discipline identifies us as his children. Second, we embrace God's discipline with willingness to learn. Last week, I graduated high school having, to my knowledge, turned in every assignment, even in math. While the discipline my parents gave to me felt obnoxiously tedious at the time, the discipline taught me the diligence that had been previously missing. So too, when we undergo God's discipline in our lives, we have the confidence that the discipline will shape us according to God's will for our lives. One of my greatest personal struggles is trusting God in every situation. There are times when stories on the news or events that friends confide to me or even things in my own life happen that really hurt. And in those moments, I often catch myself questioning, God, where are you? 
before remembering, oh yeah, I've been on the earth for 18 some years and God is the infinite creator of the universe who knows every cell in my body, who is outside of time and space, and is eternal and unchanging in his goodness. When phrased like that, of course I trust God's judgment far more than my own. Because we know that his judgment on what is good for us and what is good for the world is holy and perfect, we know God is actively using any trial in our lives to convict, to change, and to strengthen us that we might fulfill our created purpose, which is to love, glorify, worship, and enjoy him forever. Let him teach you. Theologian J.C. Ryle aptly noted, by affliction, he teaches us many precious lessons, which without it, we should never learn. By, by affliction, he shows us our emptiness and weakness, draws us to the throne of grace, purifies our affections, weans us from the world, makes us long for heaven. In the resurrection morning, we shall all say, it is good for me that I was afflicted. We shall thank God for every storm. Friends, what is the storm in your life today? Whatever trial is going on in your life right now, ask yourself how you can grow in your ability to glorify God in it. Learn your limitations and watch as God transforms you. Pray. We've been talking a lot during the sermon series using the phrase, God is greater than blank. Well, today, I tell you, God is greater than our suffering and our shortcoming, and he is good because of it. We should cling on to God's discipline with a humble willingness to learn and be molded into his image as he shapes, us, as he shapes our lives through the good and the bad. Always turn towards him, which brings me to the final point. Embrace God's discipline by submitting to him and living. Dad told you earlier that I was a biter as a toddler, and indeed that was the case. I was ferocious, a wild, wayward ragamuffin with vicious fangs. If I had not been given consequences for that and learned not to bite people, I would not have been invited up here. I would not be standing before you today helping bring the message. In painfully obvious retrospect, I can turn to my dad and say, thank you for punishing me and not allowing me to continue to bite people. Our spiritual development is so much more important, yet many of us are satisfied staying as spiritual toddlers. Are we going to continue to struggle against God's spiritual instruction like an irate toddler struggles against his parents' arms as they lovingly keep him from running into an open road? Verse 9, moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? Stop trying to run out into the middle of the proverbial road. Stop finding escapes in things of this world. Submitting is not easy, and it is not painless. But respect the promise of God's everlasting love in times of discipline by resting forever on his loving arms. We come to the end of ourselves, and God is there waiting for us, ready for us to lift our arms, admitting that we are powerless outside of the redeeming sacrifice of Christ, asking to be held as a young child reaches for his father. Our last point will be our shortest this morning.
God's discipline produces righteousness and peace. One of the challenges of an analogy is that if you press it too far, it starts to fall apart. And we see that here with human fathers, because even the best human father is a sinner. Even the best father will make mistakes in disciplining his children. And those shortcomings can be extremely painful. Some here may have been emotionally or physically abused, or God forbid, even sexually abused by a father. There are some here that have known abandonment and neglect from the hands of a human father. Those wounds can and do heal by God's grace, but scars, they often remain. If we think too much about our own human fathers, then the notion of God as a fatherly discipliner may not actually be comforting at all. So we need an important distinction, and the author gives that to us in verse 10. He writes, they disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness, as they thought best. Human fathers don't always know best. All dads are imperfect, but God disciplines us for our good. F.F. Bruce observes that our earthly fathers may sometimes have been mistaken in their estimate of the discipline we needed. Our heavenly father, in the perfection of his wisdom and love, can be relied upon never to impose any discipline on us, which is not for our good. There have been times, too many times, where I've disciplined out of impatience, frustration, not showing enough respect, or you know, and I've had to apologize to my children for being too harsh. God is never too harsh with us. He always gets it right. And look at the purpose of his discipline. In order that we may share in his holiness. God's discipline is a holy thing, and it draws us into his holiness, that we may share in it. It's a character-transforming, life-affirming discipline, even if our experience of it is unpleasant when it's being administered. That's what verse 11 tells us. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. The, the benefits of discipline aren't usually seen in the moment, right? Just like a crop needs to be planted and watered and nurtured before the harvest, so too discipline takes time to produce results. Later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness. And here that harvest is, a, is one of righteousness and peace. So we know that divine discipline is not a haphazard process. It's not chaos. It's a deliberate program of discipline that produces a certain outcome. Discipline trains us. It says it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And the word trained there is gymnazo, from which we get gymnasium. We're back to kind of an athletic metaphor, right? Back to the race. I remember my high school gym had a big sign that said, no pain, no gain, right? Weightlifting leaves you weak and weary, but it's the only way to really get strong. The discipline that God puts us through may leave us spiritually feeling weak, but it's actually making us spiritually stronger. It's soul exercise. That's Paul, what Paul understood when he wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12 about his own experience. He said, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
And that led Paul to say, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's what the author of Hebrews wants us to understand this morning. The trials you're facing now aren't meant to destroy you, but to strengthen you. Our passage ends with the author becoming a bit of a cheerleader. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. It's like a coach saying, come on, you can make it. Keep going, press on, be strong, make level paths for your feet, find your footing, keep going up the mountain. God's not going to make it too steep for you to climb. You may be ready to throw in the towel, but God is not going to make it too difficult for you to finish, that the lame may not be disabled, rather healed. God's not trying to break us. Rather, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, and you will find rest for your souls. God's discipline produces righteousness and peace. It's healing discipline. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering whip he will not snuff out. He's not done with us yet. He's a good father, and we can trust him even when the future looks bleak and uncertain. As the worship team returns to help us close out our time together, I want to switch gears for just a moment and speak to what Dave alluded to, that, um, that our family's time at Millington is coming to an end. We'll be moving back to Louisville, Kentucky, where we live for, for several years um, at the end of August. And we want to thank you for making this church so welcoming. It's such a good place for us spiritually for the last three years. To a person, every one of the members of the Welch family would say, if we could take one thing with us from New Jersey to Kentucky, it would be this church, and we, we mean that. Um, we had an occasion, and I had an occasion to go back to D.C. to Capitol Hill Baptist, where we, we married and were members, and it had been 16 years since we'd been there, and a longtime member came up and said, how does it feel to be back? And I said, it feels like home. And I can tell you that Millington will always, as long as it's rooted in the, the gospel of Jesus, it will always feel like home, um, as long as the Lord tarries. So you will never be far from our thoughts and our prayers. Let's close our time together in prayer, and then we'll, we'll sing. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are a good Father who, um, in your wisdom and your sovereignty, you have hard things for us to experience, but you do not intend for us to be destroyed. Rather, you intend for us to be changed, Lord, to more closely resemble the character of your son to reflect his glory into the world so that we can be salt and light. Lord, we don't understand often when it's happening, why it's happening, or what your purposes are. Lord, but this text tells us that we can trust you through it, that we can lean on you, that you will purify us for your glory, that we might be a holy people. Lord, we, we, we ask you to do that this morning, to provide comfort to help us to have strong arms and legs for the, the road ahead as long as you call us to journey on in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.